and can you hear me yep okay perfect okay so here we go the relationship between the dissenters of women rights movement and the establishment of the state of pakistan has undergone paradigm shifts from mutual existence and a complementary ethos to confrontation and iri conflict today we have the pleasure of having a significant voice of the women rights movement in pakistan nayab jan welcome nayab welcome to the show it was a pleasure connecting with you beyond the borders how are you doing thank you so much uh, it's lovely to be here and i'm doing as well as one can given the current global situation uh, so nayab if you could if you could tell me what are you fighting for well that really depends on who you ask right so <laughs> if you ask someone else they'll tell you we're fighting for god knows what um they'll make up all sorts of things you know we're fighting for uh we're just angry and we are you know man hitting and we are this and that so um you know it's best to hear from the person who is uh, you know who's one of the people who's doing the fighting so i think if you if you were to ask me i think the main thing that we're fighting for if you ask any a participant of any women's movement in the world the first and most important answer should be equality now the real thing is what does this mean because a lot of people really misconstrue what words like equality or freedom or things like that mean so i think uh, if you talk specifically for to you know the women's movement in pakistan i think equality for us not just means um, you know equality in terms of being having equal legal political economic social status but it also means something beyond that which is that um there are certain elements in which women's bodies women's honor you know women's lives are still part of public discourse as if we are dehumanized and i think that's one thing that we want to bring the discourse back into the hands of women we want to bring this value back into the hands of women that we are not individuals that you know carry around uh, the society's honor we're not people who uh, you should be butchering or murdering in the name of honor or in the name of culture so i think first and foremost this uh, movement is about being thought of as human beings and to have our to have control over our own lives absolutely so you're you're staying in pakistan now and there's a narrative which 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 goes around that women don't need to work in pakistan they are taken care of what would you say in this narrative like what is the reaction to this narrative yeah so i think this is not uh, once again um, everything related to women's rights is not a country specific problem um this is a global problem there are some countries where the women's movement dealt with this early on and i think you know in in the united states in the western world uh, the first wave of feminism was specifically focused on economic empowerment and i think that wave is sort of 
I mean, I wouldn't say it started now. We do have 25% of women in the workforce. So I don't think this is specifically Pakistani problem. But what I do think is that there are certain things that have happened in our history uh, that have sort of created this discourse. I think one such discourse is this, um, oftentimes this public discourse, which is that a woman's primary place is inside the house. And uh, let me tell you one thing from the get-go. I have massive respect for homemakers, as we all should have. But the real question over here is about the way that the discourse or the stereotypes are framed. So to place a woman's entire existence or entire value into what she contributes inside the house, that is the problem. To say that a woman is, uh, you know, better suited to stay inside the house and not join the workforce, that is the problem. So I think eventually it comes down to breaking these stereotypes and giving rise to choice. Every woman should have the right to choose whether she wants to work or not, and whether she wants to stay at home. So I think this discourse uh, primarily exists because people have really uh, misconstrued and misunderstood our religious history, our cultural history. They've always downplayed the importance of strong working women, um, of which we have so many, both in our religion and in our national history. So this is just an excuse by, you know, the patriarchal system to create a stereotype that uh, you know women are better suited at home and i think women everywhere in the world have proven that uh, they can do exactly what a man can do once they're in the workforce absolutely from this i take away one thing that women in the workforce are women in power position so pakistan had a prime minister who led the country and uh, Whereas if you see in countries like USA, they never had a women president till now. But if you see women rights in Pakistan, as we are specifically uh, speaking to you, because you're, you're in, in the society and you're, you're, you're speaking out against what is happening in Pakistan. How did Pakistan manage to come to this point today? Because I'm sure this was not the situation of women in Pakistan. If you see from the time of independence, how did Pakistan manage to come where they are today? Absolutely. I think this is a very, very important question. And like you said, this is the country that gave uh, the Muslim world its first female leader. And, you know, she was a force to be reckoned with. I mean, she's, she was one of the strongest uh, leaders uh, in terms of what she endured and you know what she went through in her life so we have you know this rich history of people like Fatma Jinnah of people like Benazir Bhutto even right now we have uh, so many women in politics but I think the structural impediments are still there I think specifically if you trace our history uh, back to you know the 70s and the 80s we're a very um, ill-informed sort of um, uh, Islamization it was called but to me that's not what it was because I don't think that any religion in the world uh, would would promote treating women like that but there have been periods of really authoritarian dictatorial regimes really uh, coupled with the very patriarchal outlook uh, which has really sort of led to sort of a regression as well so I think 
in the 70s and 80s is when you really saw a lot of really problematic and regressive legislation against women you know and you saw this very very uh, conservative and sort of literalist interpretation of uh, you know scripture and that is sort of what really turned back the handles of uh, the hands of time um now as we've come into the 21st century i think what's happened now is that given the fact that there is so much openness and there's so much um we have so much exposure to other countries and other cultures um you know where we're seeing women out in public life out in public in the public sphere that resistance has started again um because i don't think that women in the 21st century can still be told that your primary place is to stay at home so absolutely it's rather unfortunate that you know this amazing beautiful country uh, that uh, you know gave the muslim world its first female prime minister unfortunately you know such things are said about women over here but i think that the tide is really changing and that is what we're fighting for um that a woman should want to be exactly what she should be allowed to be exactly what she wants to be if a woman wants to be the future prime minister of pakistan then nobody should be able to stop her coming into religious politics now and uh, in searches of religion mainly from the far right politics be it hindutva in india catholics in poland or or the white supremacists and the far right in the usa women rights has taken a huge hit the social injustices has risen in pakistan there's a huge number of radical islamic clerics pointing out fingers at women even if it rains in pakistan so what would you how do you see women rights sacrificed uh, in pakistan or maybe anywhere in the world through religious uh, politics or maybe by religious clerics So I think there's a couple of things that need to be clarified. Um the first thing is that religious clerics haven't really uh been in government in Pakistan. Uh a religious party hasn't this is the very surprising facts about Pakistan that a religious party a religiously inclined like overtly religious party hasn't won I believe it's more than like 10% of the vote bank ever in Pakistan's history. uh even in you know the um the three major parties it used to be two now it's three even in the three major parties they're not uh, overtly islamic parties so here's so in that sense the comparison with uh, you know the far right which is in government in let's say india or in uh, the united states or now the rise of the far right in a lot of european countries is uh, I don't think in that sense it's apt but what has happened in my opinion is that the clergy has always had um this sort of alliance with the state and uh, they've been um they've somehow been allowed to um sort of increase their influence now i also would like to disagree that there is um that much of an influence of the clergy in you know um, urban centers my when i always give my perspective on like you know what is happening in pakistan i never say that pakistan is the biggest problem in pakistan is um violent extremism or religious extremism actually i believe that the majority of people are of course non violent and not 
extremist in a dangerous way. But what I do believe is that the majority of people are ingrained with subtle forms of patriarchy and sexism, which might not be overtly violent, right? So I, I, I don't know if I'm being able to explain this difference, which is that a majority of men are not picking up arms against women, or a majority of men are not honor killing women or, you know, doing these overt acts of violence. And it's not like the clergy is like inciting violence and, you know, uh, women are getting killed and plundered in that way. But there are normalized versions of, you know, non-violent sort of structural oppression of women, which for me is more problematic. So let me give you like subtle examples, right? So things like what you mentioned earlier, like not being allowed to work or things like that the primary thing that a woman should do with her life is to um, you know, get married or have children. Uh, things like clothing, things like being out and about in the public. These are not necessarily issues where these people are listening to the far right about these things, right? I'm talking here about your, uh, you know, your average um, middle class person or urban person. It's not that they're going to be um, beating up the girls or saying that, you know, you can never go outside of the house. But it's like this constant a stereotype that you have to battle with. Those people are not violent, but the way they socialize these girls is that they tell them that their place in society is less than a man. Their place in society is primarily, you know, a one where they are staying inside. So I don't know if I was able to make this distinction clear, but my biggest fear is not, you know, far right violent extremism. My biggest fear is how our normal non-violent people have internalized patriarchy in their everyday lives. So in 2016, uh, there was an incident where a, a famous Pakistani actress, uh, Kandil Baloch, was killed live on a, on a social media platform. And it was, a, it was an incident of honor killing. Obviously, this is somehow driven by, by what is happening in the society, but do you think this changed under the leadership of Prime Minister Imran Khan? So I think um, here's one thing that you have to understand that um, particularly when we're talking about um, change with regards to marginalized communities, at least in my opinion, I feel like, um, you know, the um, governments and uh, states and you know institutions um, are oftentimes not the best at protecting these groups so i personally believe that this change really needs to be brought about by grassroots activism and civil society and you know people like that so if you look at kandil's case which is something that you've mentioned now kandil's case has now become a landmark case when it comes to honor killings in pakistan um she was you know a social media influencer and kandil's case opens up an entire pandora's box Kandil's case is not just about honor killings. Like, let me tell you, and I'll come to that as well, um, how the situation about honor killings has changed and what uh, the government responses have been. But if I talk to you about what other elements of our society it represents, unfortunately, is that um, 
like exactly what I was telling you, right? So people who were watching Kandil Baloch, um, or if you have ever seen the nature of what her Facebook or, or you know, um, social media feeds were like, I am, I don't think this, these were like super religious clerics or um, extremist people who were watching her, like on a regular basis. I mean, there was the odd uh, cleric here and there, but um this is the problem that people have this strange idea with you know quote unquote liberal women or uh, you know revealing women which is that they will watch them like crazy who made kandil a superstar those hundreds of thousands of people who were watching her that male audience that was also lusting after her but there's this strange dual hypocrisy where on the one hand there's this lust and desire uh, to see women in you know these sorts of situation and this sort of clothing and then on the flip side there's this desire to also morally police those women and to abuse them and shame them so it really opens up this other Pandora's box that I hope that someday, and right now, by the way, this conversation is very relevant in Pakistan because just recently uh, we've embarrassed ourselves um, uh, doing something similar under a Turkish uh, actress's um, Instagram comments. So people started moral policing her and shaming her on her dress. So I think this points to a larger problem that we have, which is where we are so intrusive with women's lives. We judge them based on their clothing. We police them constantly. Now, coming to your issue about honor killings, like I said, I think it's, um, um, I don't see any visible change so far when it comes to the current government. But like I said, very few times do states and governments really take up the issue of marginalized communities in a very, very serious kind of manner, particularly in a country like Pakistan, where, uh, you know, there are so many, you know, pressing issues and structural problems that they have to deal with. So pretty much the largest section of this work is handled by activists and by civil society and, you know, by lawyers and, you know, people who are in this. Now, Kandil's case was handled by people that I know, lawyers that I know. And uh, it is one of those cases where um, for the first time, you know, the pardon that was granted to her brother was eventually withdrawn. So this is a very landmark case where uh, even though it took many, many years for this to happen, you know, three, three and a half years for this to happen, eventually, um, you know, it did have a favorable outcome. Now, the thing with landmark cases is that they are both, um, they give you uh, room for optimism as well as depression. Optimism because, you know, this happened and, you know, it sensitized people and, you know, she became an icon and so many other things. But there's also depression because you feel like perhaps this case only reached its logical conclusion or the only reason why justice was served was because it was a high profile case. What about all of those hundreds of girls who have nobody to turn to, who weren't stars, who weren't social media influencers, who, you know, whose cases weren't looked after by big lawyers and, you know, the media wasn't there. Who's going to take care of those girls? And that's why I'm saying that I think at the end of the day, this is the work that we need to do. This is the work that activists need to do. Yes, 
politicians lawmakers the state is important because it gives us those tools it gives us those laws it gives us those law enforcement agencies but at the end of the day it's up to us to at least even take up those cases and to push for the kind of structural change where a brother cannot take up arms against his sister entitled men toxic masculinity patriarchy what else do you think fuels uh, the situation in pakistan i think for the most part it's a very very uh, deep rooted idea of patriarchy unfortunately it has been justified by holding those things uh, as justifications that people uh, think of very dearly uh, you know things like cultural traditions things like religion um if you compare pakistan even to other muslim countries and if you look at the indicators that we have unfortunately when it comes to women's rights uh, we are ranked very very low the closest countries that we are uh, to in terms of um, if you specifically compare with other muslim countries is saudi arabia and afghanistan so this is not a good situation to be in at all because you know one of those countries is war torn and the other is a monarchy so very um, strange company that we're in when it comes to women's rights but if i were to you know really break it down to you i just feel like there's there's a structural patriarchy that exists on so many levels say on a mental level that we are unable to transcend this idea that women um should have full control over their lives there is this uh, one other thing that i really really want to mention is that there is this strange fear that is associated with the word freedom with the word azadi it is so strange pakistan has such a rich history of grassroots struggles and resistance movements whether it's against dictatorial regimes whether against oppressive governments um you know we we have a rich history our country was born out of resistance so we have resistance in our dna in our blood uh, unfortunately when it comes to women uh, when the word resistance or azadi is attached to uh, any women's rights struggle it's automatically deemed to be vulgarity that these women what free what does freedom mean they want the freedom to roam around uh, naked on the streets they want the freedom to you know do this and do that and and you know that's not really primarily what any women's rights movement is about it's about challenging structural impediments to women's progress it's about equality and and of course it's about freedom it is about choices uh, to reduce it just to something that these people are so scared of which is you know the freedom to um you know uh, to the free, the freedom to have control over your own body that's one aspect of it but i don't understand why this is something that terrifies people so much i mean 
complete i i i don't really understand why the word freedom is misinterpreted misused and it's made into a counter propaganda whereas when we talk about freedom it is so much more than clothing it's about the freedom to think beyond the boundaries that people have put us in it's about the freedom to associate freely the freedom to live our lives without these burdens and shackles that you know a lot the patriarchal society has imposed on when it comes to the women's movement i don't know why there are certain elements in society that just reduce freedom and equate it to vulgarity to you know uh, be oh these are just a bunch of liberal women who just want to roam around naked on the streets no if that's what you think then you've completely misunderstood what this whole thing is about it's about freedom is about much more than what you're wearing freedom is about the freedom to think about certain things the freedom to um to be free from stereotypes and the types of shackles and boundaries that society has imposed on you and it's about much more than you know just um this freedom to dress the way you want to which is something that these people seem to be obsessed with i don't understand uh, where this obsession stems from to be honest i don't really understand whether they think that uh, you know a woman who is um, wearing you know uh, whatever they consider to be conservative clothing um i don't know what it is about her that is uh, more appealing or is it that they feel that she can be easily controlled which i don't think is the case it's a horrible stereotype there are so many amazing women in our movement who wear the hijab who wear the dupatta Uh, so it's just stereotypes you know and so i think this is a very tragic turn that it's uh, it has taken but i do think it's the responsibility is on us i think that the responsibility to shift this narrative that when we mean freedom it does not have to be a bad word um we should say that we want freedom and we should say it proudly absolutely so um I have heard you speaking against um like soaps and dramas in Pakistan and how how it uh, has a complete narrative or which is which is taken by many men and I've I've seen you speaking against uh a, a certain person who's who's out there who who speaks <laughs> speaks absolute nonsense I believe um and so how do you think like all these factors uh like work in pakistan and like how would you define the soaps and daily dramas in pakistan because it is a very like heavily watched platform to many people growing up right so i think this is something that uh, pakistan and india definitely share like across the border um you know the soaps that we've all grown up um, watching have very very uh, problematic uh, gendered stereotypes and gendered roles um so when um, specifically if i talk about pakistan the strange thing about pakistani uh, the pakistani drama industry is that actually um if you look at it uh, you know when from our parents generation and because you see indian soaps uh, because i've grown up watching them Indian soaps were sort of the pioneer when it comes to you know these absolutely regressive um, stereotypical portrayals of women 
and you know uh, at that point like in the early 2000s if you look at pakistani dramas they were actually much more liberal and there was very good quality work happening it's unfortunately in like the last decade decade and a half i think where i don't know why pakistani dramas have also succumbed to this um this very traditional uh, you know soap opera style uh you know portrayal of uh, men and women of the same old story of that big family where you know the, everything revolves around the house um uh, reducing everything to to the genre of the family and family feuds and things like that so it's actually been very sad for me to see this uh, transformation whereas in reality the society and women in pakistan are moving above and beyond these things particularly the younger generation of women like 18 to you know 35 40 um women uh, in this category are stepping out of the homes they're getting educated they're ambitious they are you know uh, much more well read they have exposure why are we showing these women these types of soap operas and um you know every time this um this sort of justification is used that you know this is what people want to watch and i completely refute that i completely reject that because when i was doing research for these videos and the first um video in this series is coming out um in in a couple of days um so many girls reached out to me hundreds of girls reached out to me and said that they don't want to watch this you know um they want to uh, they want to watch girls who have a life beyond just dreaming about a husband and children and family feuds so i think it's just really really disheartening to see that this beautiful industry that we once had that showed strong female characters that showed women working outside the house is i don't know why it's regressing and i think one of the reasons is because uh, people like the character that you've mentioned are some of the most revered uh, writers in this country so i'm really really hoping that this tide is going to change and we're going to move towards a more sensible and reasonable representation of women um, in soap operas absolutely so there are there are few efforts by the hierarchy and uh, where uh, i may talk about in 1948 the law of sharia uh, which which recognizes a woman's right to inherit all forms of property and then there's right. also been in 1961 there's uh, the muslim family laws of ordinance covering marriage and divorce which is widely regarded to empower women do you think these made any difference to the society uh, society you are living in absolutely you see legislation is key there's a reason why uh, most of the grassroots activists who fight for women's rights um, often times one of the end points yes of course uh, we have different demands uh, you know we're talking about changes in mindsets and perceptions and things like that but one of the end points is always legislation because no matter what it is and you know a couple of days ago i was interviewing um, senator sherry rahman who's uh, you know 
champion for women's rights in Pakistan. And she put it very beautifully because she said that, you know, when there's a woman, a poor woman, particularly who is, uh, you know, being deprived or oppressed, let's suppose with regards to the things you've mentioned, whether it's inheritance or if it's about, uh, you know, domestic violence or, you know, things like that. Um, the first defense that she has when she can plead to, uh, you, know, age, uh, you know, the state or the government is that she can have the reference of some law with her. That, you know, this particular law is supposed to protect me from this type of oppression or this type of violence. Um, without having those laws in place, it's just a woman who's going to go into a police station and say, you know, this shouldn't happen to me or this is unfair. But to have those things enshrined in the law is very important. And I think there are a lot of such things that have come from a very positive uh, sort of take and interpretation of, um, you know, uh, the Islamic law as well, uh, where, you know, this, the inheritance thing is possibly one of the uh, biggest, I think, achievements of uh, Islamic law in general, that it was a very revolutionary law uh, for its time. So I think that in that sense, absolutely, these things make a difference. And the reason why, you know, when you borrow these things from scripture, it also has an added impact of people taking it seriously, you know, uh, in a country like Pakistan, uh, you know, conventions, international conventions like CEDAW and things like that can always be, you know, uh, sort of pushed aside or nullified by, you know, the ordinary person by saying, oh, you know, this is something westernized and this is this and that. But when these things are derived from our own, you know, uh, our rich history, our heritage, you know, a lot of positive things um, that are enshrined in our religion, then I think it's also a better way to convince people of uh, the need to have these laws. So in the past few years, the Aurat March in Pakistan has raised a voice against the hierarchy in the country in order to look for change. So if you could tell us the contribution of Aurat March in Pakistan. Well, I think... Um, whether it's intentional or unintentional, possibly the biggest contribution that Aurat March has made is that um, it's pretty much rocked the foundations of um, whatever the patriarchy held dearest to it. I mean, of course, it's controversial right now, but... Uh, a lot of good, I mean, I don't think the people who were the organizers, the initial organizers of the Aurat March ever thought that it would become, you know, so viral. And, you know, good publicity, bad publicity, the, the, at the end of the day, the important thing is that it stirred up a debate. So let me tell you about this year. I have never seen in my life uh, prime time news shows and you know India also has these you know the same old like talk show format news shows that you have where people are screaming and fighting with each other so I'm pretty sure you can understand what type of shows I'm talking about but political news shows uh, on prime time for you know about a week or two weeks on repeat talking about Aurat March constantly having us on air, constantly debating, you know, the slogans, the, the controversy, the good, the bad, all of that. I think it's huge. 
And for people who hate us uh, right now, I just want to say, firstly, I hate nobody. And, uh, you know, I hope that you'll talk to us and that you'll come to us. And, you know, um, I hope that you'll understand that at the end of the day, what we're really fighting for is equality, is freedom. And uh, I just think that Aurat March has become bigger than what we even envisioned. And I think in, and, you know, we have fought against all odds. I mean, this year, it seemed like it was never going to happen. We had, you know, impediments on our mobility. We had, you know, court cases registered against us. We had media propaganda. We had just so much happening. You know, the, the, the march in Islamabad uh, faced physical violence. So at the end of the day, you know, against so much and to still, uh, you know, be persistent, I just, I still think it's an achievement and it's success. Absolutely. So this is my last question. Uh, so in a society where women as, are treated as second class citizens, uh, in a society where there's so extreme sexism, at times you see there's no access to education as well in many cases. Do you think there's a problem with democracy? I think, well, you know, with Pakistan, it becomes a little tricky because we have had, you know, uh, we haven't really had uninterrupted democracy. You know, our democracy has been interrupted many times. I mean, I personally believe that even an imperfect democracy is better than, you know, authoritarian alternatives. But, but I wouldn't say that it's a failure of democracy because I think that um, if you look at it, if you look at systems like capitalism, uh, you know, if you look at particularly when 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 capitalism becomes a part of or unequal and any unequal economic system becomes a part of the democratic uh, tradition, then, you know, this is something that happens. Uh, groups that are economically and socially marginalized always end up losing their voice in the democratic space as well. Um, so this is something that we've witnessed everywhere in the world. This is not just in Pakistan. Of course, um, you know, for women in Pakistan, this is definitely a problem. But uh, for me, democracy is never a failure. This is still the same country that through democracy gave, you know, uh, us a female prime minister. So I think that democratic channels are very important, especially when you're talking about marginalized groups like women and minorities. So I feel like, you know, we've some of most of the progress that we've made is because democratic governments have, uh, you know, enshrined a lot of this legislation. If you look at laws that were enacted in 2016, or if you look at before that, uh, you know, with a lot of provincial um, governments as well. So yes, imperfect democracy, yes, many times a failure, but at the end of the day, you know, much, much better. And I definitely believe that it's going to be democratic leaders uh, when we engage with them, when we speak to them, when we mobilize them, they're the ones who are going to help us and, uh, you know, also try and take these laws forward. So, um, so we'll start the rapid fire right now, Nayab. Um, so, Imran Khan. Um, I think he he's a he's a charismatic guy. The most that I'll say at this point. Secularism. Um, 
Probably not for Pakistan at this point. Women in position of power? That's the best thing that can happen to a country. Khalilul Rahman Kamar? Um, unfortunately, not yet irrelevant. Patriarchy? Absolute, absolute bullshit. Uh, Benazir Bhutto? Iconic. India? Um, friends. Mera jism, Mary Marzi. Say it loud and proud. So thank you so much, Nayab, for the interview. So would you like to end this interview in a note where you could say what lies in the future? Absolutely. I think the best way to sum it up, I'd like to share with you today um, actually a poem that my father wrote. It's an Urdu poem. And uh, it is uh, one of Pakistan's most well-known revolutionary uh, poems. And this is something that he wrote against um, a dictatorial regime. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very revolutionary poem. It's been translated into a lot of languages. And his uh, book with this title, Main Baagi Hoon, which basically means I'm a rebel. I'm, I'm sure you know what Baagi means. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, I'll just recite a few lines from the... Actually, I'll recite the last thing on which he ends. Uh, you know, uh, Benazir Bhutto also used to recite this poem. And, uh, you know, what a sort of... Uh, kind of eerie uh, similarity it has with her life it's uh, quite sad as well but you know to all the brave people out there who are fighting for any kind of injustice um, in their part of the world so the last a couple of lines go mere haath mein haq ka jhanda hai mere sar pe zulm ka phanda hai main marne se kab darti hu main maut ki khatir zinda hu मेरे खून का सूरज चमकेगा तो बच्चा बच्चा बोलेगा मैं बागी हूं मैं बागी हूं जो चाहे मुझ पर जुल्म करो अमेजिंग थैंक यू सो मच नयाब थैंक यू सो मच आई विश यू ऑल द बेस्ट फॉर दिस फाइट एंड आई होप टू सी यू इन द नियर फ्यूचर व्हेन एवर यू आर इन माय कंट्री और मे in the parts any anywhere in the part of the world and i wish you all the best thank you so much thank you and i wish you all the best and uh, you know wherever you are. i believe you're in germany right now right yes okay so i i wish you all the best over there and i really really uh, i think the biggest the better goodbye wish would be that i wish that we can see each other in our own countries one day absolutely i look forward to that as well thank you Okay thank you bye